Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of New Books in German Studies. We are part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College. I'm one of the many co-hosts of this channel. Today, we are very lucky uh, to have with us uh, Larry Eugene Jones, and we're going to be discussing his book, Hitler versus Hindenburg, the 1932 presidential election and the end of the Weimar Republic, published with Cambridge University Press in 2016. Professor Jones is, uh, has been a professor at Canisius College in Buffalo, New York, and he's also an internationally recognized e- expert in the political history of the Weimar Republic. He also happens to have been uh, one of my own personal mentors as I was an undergraduate at uh, Canisius College before I got my own career started. Hi, Larry. Welcome to the show. You're welcome. Thank you. So, Larry, I just wanted to start out today with sort of our usual uh, traditional start to uh, New Books in German Studies and... I just wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the politics of the Weimar Republic. Oh, that's an interesting question. I think my interest in the Weimar Republic goes back to, uh, you have to remember that I was a product of the 1960s. I graduated from uh, the University of Kansas in 1961 and then was at the University of Wisconsin from 63 to 66. And those were very heady days, I think, uh, for young people like myself. And I think at that time I began to ask myself the question of whether or not what had happened in Germany might happen in the United States as well. You remember those that was the days of the uh, of the Vietnam protest, and uh, I think that uh, the American system stood on the brink of something. Uh, and I was. Uh, very concerned that uh, what happened in the in Germany might replicate itself here in the United States, and uh, I think that was clearly what uh, pushed my inquiry, my interest in that direction. That's interesting. There might be some people who feel uh, the same way about our current political moment. Yeah, I think I think my original conclusion was that the political cultures of the United States and Germany were so different. Uh, that uh, what had happened in Germany could not reproduce itself here in the United States, but I would agree with you now. Maybe I'm rethinking that question. (laughs) All right. And uh, I was wondering, because you have uh, such uh, a long and um, distinguished career of publishing about the politics of the Weimar Republic, if you'd be willing to just talk a little bit about, um, you know, concisely some of your uh, previous work on, on, uh, Weimar politics. Well, my first interest in this respect was the failure of German liberalism, and why uh, it had to do also with the failure of Weimar democracy. And uh, uh, my dissertation uh, at the University of Wisconsin dealt with the failure of the liberals to coalesce into a single political party that might have been more resistant to the rise of national so, national socialism, and that might have provided, I think, a better bulwark of uh, support for uh, the Weimar Republic. And uh, since then, my my interest has shifted more 
from the liberal middle or the liberal parties uh, to the German right. And I think uh, I sort of concluded my work on the German liberal parties uh, in uh, the late 1980s with the publication of a book at the University of North Carolina Press entitled German Liberalism and Dissolution of the Weimar Party System. But at the same time I've been finishing that book, I've begun collecting materials uh, and and doing research on uh, not just the right-wing political parties, but right-wing interest groups and right-wing patriotic associations. And I had expected to turn something out uh, fairly quickly after the publication of my first book, but that I, I was deluding myself there. And then suddenly at the very end of the uh, 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s, all of the materials that were in the former German Democratic Republic were suddenly made available. And there was an enormous amount of material in the former Deutsche Zentrale Archive that I would not have had access to otherwise that became available. And so the scope of my work, you know, a project there greatly expanded and, uh, and took a lot more time than I had originally imagined. So I had been working on that general topic since the 1990s. Uh, and uh, I was not making as much progress or as quick a pro- uh, progress as I had hoped. And uh, I was talking to my editor at, the, at Cambridge University Press. His name is Lewis Bateman. And I sort of expressed my frustration. He says, well, why don't you take a break from that and do something a little more specific? And at that time, I was talking to him about where I was in the project. I was really up to the 1932 presidential elections where Hindenburg and Hitler uh, confronted each other for the Reich's presidency. I mentioned to him how difficult it was to work through that period because so little had been done, particularly on the elections. And he says, well, why don't you take time off from the larger project and write a book on the 1932 elections? And so the book that uh, we're discussing today is uh, is the product of that uh, sort of uh, thinking. Great. Um, so that's a nice segue into starting to talk about the book itself. Uh, so I appreciate that. And I'd like to um, start I guess, in, in principle, with some things you write about in the introduction, but that also yeah. uh, leads us into a discussion of the broader your broader conception of the book, right? And uh, since you're, uh, you know, one of the most uh, widely published, not just in your books, but in your edited volumes and your, your journal articles, you're one of the most widely published historians of uh, politics, Um I was wondering if you'd start by giving us something of a reflection on uh, political history, the state of political history. And one thing that interests me a little bit uh, that you discuss in the introduction of the book is this uh, tension in political history between the agency of the individual political actor or the individual uh, politician versus some of the constraints that that individual faces uh, in comparison to social institutions, cultural norms. Okay, and so well, on. That's a good question. And uh, again, uh, let me provide uh, some personal biography here. I mean, I had the remarkably good fortune to study in Germany with two of the preeminent historians of this period. First, Carl Dietrich Brocker. I had a full right at the University of Bonn from 1964. I'm trying to remember, 66 to 68. And then I later had a two-year Humboldt uh, fellowship uh, 
at the University of Bochum, where I worked with Hans Monson. And I think that they, uh, they, they, they were both what I would consider certainly political historians, although Rocker himself was a political scientist, but he wrote history. Uh, and they were interested first and foremost in trying to understand the structural factors that conditioned or framed uh, the conduct of politics. And while both of them would place uh, a great deal of emphasis upon the long-range structural factors that shaped the course of German history and German politics. Uh, they also believed, and this comes out very explicitly in their work, uh, that, that, that the actions of individual historical actors were ultimately what sort of defined the direction that these long-range historical factors, culture, economics, uh, social uh, structure uh, would go. Uh, I think there is a, if I'm trying to remember this directly, I think there's a passage in Max Weber in one, in, in, in one of his lectures on the, on the sociology of religion, where he says that it's material interests that drive the process of historical change, but it is the action of individuals. They act as, individuals act as switchmen to determine which course uh, these long-range historical factors uh, will move in. And that has always sort of been a guiding metaphor for my own work. Uh, While it is primarily important to understand the structures, uh, here we're talking about the economic structures, the institutional structures uh, of a given society that limit uh, the opportunity for uh, individual uh, action, uh, still, it is action that will determine uh, in certain critical states, not necessarily at all times, but there are certain crises that develop where the opportunities for individual historic uh, agency are much greater than they might have been at other points in the process. I hope I made that sufficiently clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And just then looking uh, at another uh, issue from the introduction, obviously introductions are frequently where you discuss sort of the broader uh, I- impact of, of the book. And it seems like, it seemed to me at least that one of the major uh, theses you would say, advance in the book are, um, first of all, that this election was very important to the non-Nazi right. And second of all, that this election tells us something about the fragmentation of the non-Nazi right. Yeah. Could, could you talk about that a little bit? Well, there, there's, there's a recent argument that has been advanced in a, bo- in a book by Daniel Ziblatt from Harvard. I think it's called Conservative Parties and Democracy. The, the central thesis of his argument is that the transition from an authoritarian system of government to democracy occurs most easily in those political cultures where there is a strong state-supporting conservative party that is loyal to the existing system of government. And the question then becomes is, why did such a party never develop in Germany? Uh, In contrast to uh, the Tory party in Great Britain, which had became a bulwark of British democracy. Uh, And uh, the uh, long, short answer to that question is that uh, the forces on the German right were 
so badly fragmented that they could not coalesce into a particular party that might have provided the Weimar Republic with the sort of stability it needed. Uh, now, in this respect, uh, the elections in 1932 are a, a critical event in the sense that by that time, uh, the most important of Germany's right-wing parties, the German National People's Party, or DNVP as uh, we sometimes refer to it, had already suffered two major successions in 1920, at the end of 1929 and then again in the summer of 1930. Uh, the party at that time was in the hands of the most radical elements within the party who were opposed to any sort of accommodation with the Weimar system and uh, that were at that time interested in developing closer ties to the emerging Nazi party. Uh, the leader of the DNVP was a man by the name of Alfred Hugenberg, and uh, uh, he was, uh, I think, uh, best described as sort of an irascible opponent of Weimar democracy and was determined to do everything he could uh, to uh, destroy the, uh, the, the system of government that had been established back in 1918, 1919. The 1932 elections offered an opportunity for the right to sort of reunite or to coalesce behind the candidacy of uh, Hindenburg. Hindenburg had been elected to his first term as uh, Reich's president in, uh, November, in, 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 in 1925. And at that time, virtually the entire right, with the exception of the extreme right wing, uh, had coalesced behind his candidacy and had uh, catapulted him to the, president, the presidency. The question now was whether or not that would happen again in uh, seven years later when his term expired and when new elections uh, were to uh, be held. He was a reluctant candidate. At that time, he was well into his 80s. He thought he had served his nation well and deserved, uh, you know, to uh, spend uh, the last years of his life in uh, relative uh, comfort. And But... Uh, the situation in Germany was such uh, that uh, people on the more moderate right, uh, including some in the in the uh, in the military, uh, prevailed upon him to stand for re-election, and uh, the hope was uh, that all but the most extreme elements on the right would coalesce behind his candidacy, and. Uh, it, it also uh, took on, uh, I think the election took on added significance when Adolf Hitler declared shortly after Hindenburg himself had announced his candidacy, Hitler declared that he was going to uh, oppose Hindenburg for the presidency. So here you have the two dominant figures on the German right, uh, Hindenburg, who represents the more traditional and uh, authentically conservative elements of the German right. And on the other hand, you have Adolf Hitler, who represents the new right and the more fascist right, if I, uh, I can use that term to describe uh, uh, the Nazi party. And Larry, I wonder if just for the um, for our audience, before we go any further, it might be useful then to maybe uh, just 
finish your sketch of who the major players are on the non-Nazi right versus the Nazi right. And then um, I think related to the presidential election, just describing the, for anyone who might not know, the function of the presidency and how the presidential election worked in the, in the Weimar system. Well, let me, let me answer the first question, okay? The, the Reich presidency was actually created in large part in, uh, re, in response to Max Weber's arguments. What he wanted to do, Weber was very concerned in the, in the uh, deliberations about the Weimar Constitution that he did not want to put all of the power in the parliament because he, didn't, he, he fought, felt that there had to be some sort of of uh, check on the uh, upon a popularly elected parliament, where that would be subject to short-term fluctuations in public opinion and all of the uh, and 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 the vicissitudes of party politics and all of that. And he thought that the best guarantee against the domination of the masses. With all of that, uh, what all of that was supposed to mean would be to have a strong, popularly elected president who would serve a term law sufficiently long that he would uh, uh, be able to ride these temporary, these momentary changes in public opinion and in uh, political popularity. So it was, it was a check on that, and uh, so uh, it the president was invested with the important powers foremost among his powers was the power to appoint the chancellor and the chancellors from 1919 to 1933 were all appointed uh, through the constitutional process by the president. Uh, the other thing that I would say about this is that the constitution also invested the president with certain emergency powers under the terms of article 48 and uh, he, could, he could use these emergency powers to introduce legislation on the strength of his own authority without necessarily having to subject that to the Reichstag for parliamentary approval. Uh, this, these sort of powers were only to be employed in emergencies and uh, only to be employed when it proved difficult for one reason or another to get uh, the approval of the Reichstag. Uh, these powers had been evoked in 1923 at the height of the hyperinflation uh, of the early Weimar Republic. And at that time, uh, the uh, chancellor, was his, his name was Wilhelm March, from the Center Party. He did use emerg- presidential emergency powers to stabilize the mark and to undertake other economic and financial reforms that he could never have gotten through the Reichstag. Now, in 1930, in the early stages of the world economic crisis, uh, Hindenburg had to, he was not, uh, Hindenburg again, had to uh, resort to these sort of, uh, I have to correct that, Hindenburg had not been the one who did it in 1923, that had been Ebert. Uh, but now Hindenburg makes use of these powers again. And he does it uh, through uh, one of the key players in uh, the events of 1933, 30 30 to 33, and that is Heinrich Brüning. Heinrich Brüning was the chancellor who was uh, installed in office in March of 1930. 
with the uh, with and, and and given the task of restoring a measure of fiscal and economic sanity uh, to Germany. Uh, he was particularly interested in uh, doing what he could to balance the the budget uh, in the face of mounting uh, uh, expenditures, large part for unemployment insurance. And uh, <clears throat> Bruning realized from the beginning that it would be extremely difficult for him to secure approval through uh, the Reichstag, through the German parliament. And consequently, uh, uh, Hindenburg vested him or gave him uh, these uh, special emergency powers that the Article 48 of the Constitution authorized. And uh, I think in general, uh, Bruning uh, was, while he was prepared to use these powers, he would prefer to have uh, introduced his uh, his sort of his fiscal program uh, through the Reichstag with uh, the support of the parliamentary majority there. Uh, but it became quite clear, in large part, because of the intransigence of the of the of the of the German right, uh, the German National People's Party. That he could not get a parliamentary majority to do this, uh, and so he, in April of 1940, 1930, uh, resorted to the use of Article Forty Eight to do this. The other key players in the events that we're talking about, uh, Bruning is certainly a key player. He is the one who actually goes to Hindenburg and prevails upon Hindenburg to stand for re-election in nineteen thirty-two. Uh, at that time, the relationship between Hindenburg and Bruning was fairly good. Uh, there had been some strain in the summer of 1931 because Bruning did not move quickly enough or aggressively enough towards a, uh, an alliance with the, with the German right. Uh, but uh, the relationship was still in fairly good shape in the spring of 1932. The other key player here is the uh, a sort of political strategist, chief political strategist in the Reichswehr or in the German army, a man that by the name of Kurt von Schleicher. And Schleicher had a somewhat different uh, approach to the political situation that uh, Germany uh, found itself in in uh, 32. Uh, he, uh, he, was, he, was, he had kept, he, he was very, uh, let's say, cautious, very wary of what was going on on the extreme right. Uh, he had followed Hitler's political career from the early 1920s. Uh, I can't exactly remember how he described him, uh, but he certainly thought that uh, uh, that Hitler was uh, incompetent in, to assume uh, any role of political responsibility. He says at one time that he is a, a demagogue without any sense of what the real situation is like, said that very early in looking at Hitler uh, in the early 1920s. And he was alarmed at the fact that in the most recent uh, national elections, uh, the Nazi party had uh, achieved an astonishing electoral breakthrough, that it had received 107 seats in parliament, that it had gotten about 14% of the popular vote, and he uh, also realized that with the deteriorating economic situation in Germany, the appeal of National Socialism seemed to be growing every day. And that was certainly reflected in a series of uh, 
state and uh, provincial elections that had been held in 1929, 1930. You could document the growing strength of the party. And in trying to figure out how to deal with the threat of National Socialism, Schleicher came up with what is called the taming strategy. The taming strategy argued that the best way of dealing with the Nazi threat was to bring the Nazi party into the government and saddle them with governmental responsibility, and that in turn would force them to uh, act responsibly. It would deprive them of the advantage they enjoyed as an opposition party that could attack the government with impunity. You give them a share of responsibility, and again, they would behave more responsibly. That was his, that was his strategy. It was a strategy that found support in other sector, sections of the not, sectors of the non-Nazi right, and it also enjoyed the support of influential figures within the German business community, within German industry in particular. And uh, it was a, basically a question of when do you begin to deploy this strategy. Uh, Schleicher had tried to push Bruning in that direction in August of 1931, but Bruning resisted in large part because he had no confidence in Hitler and he had no confidence, certainly, in Hugenberg as leader of the DNVP. Uh, other key players in uh, the events that we're talking about, uh, I think... Uh, here, here, here is the dynamic that develops. Hugenberg is adamantly opposed to anything that might help Bruning stabilize his position in uh, uh, as chancellor, and so uh, Alfred Hugenberg, again uh, the leader of the DNVP, the uh, uh, nominally conservative political party that had moved radically to the right. Uh, between 1928 and 1932, Hugenberg adamantly opposed Hindenburg's uh, candidacy in large part because he saw that as uh, a shield uh, for uh, Bruning. Uh, he probably would have supported Hugenberg if Hugenberg had disavowed Bruning, had diso- disassociated himself uh, from Bruning altogether. But as long as Bruning remained in the, as chancellor, uh, Hugenberg would uh, continue to uh, do everything in his power uh, to defeat Hindenburg as president. Uh, <clears throat> now, the, 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 the question was, once Hindenburg had declared his candidacy, once it became clear that Hitler himself would emerge as a candidate, who would uh, would would Hugenberg himself run? He toyed with the idea, but he was eventually dissuaded from doing that, with the result that Hugenberg and his cadre, uh, his uh, cohort of supporters, uh, decided instead to nominate another person, a man by the name of Theodor Dusterberg, who was head of a large conservative veterans organization known as the Stahlhelm or steel helmet. And so what we have here are three basic can, uh, major candidates for the presidency, all on the German right, okay? Hindenburg, Hitler, and Dusterberg. Now, uh, there is one other uh, candidate of significance 
this is a man by the name of Ernst Tailman, who is the candidate of the Communist Party, but uh, uh, he does not figure very prominently in the calculations of the German right. The question then becomes, who are the people who had opposed Hindenburg in 1925, who had rallied behind the, uh, uh, the campaign of Wilhelm Marx in what was an unsuccessful attempt to keep Hindenburg from becoming president, who were they going to vote for? And uh, they weighed the possibility of running a candidate of their own, but realized that that would be a hopeless proposition uh, given the political circumstances that existed in early 32. And one by one, first the, the German Center Party, which was the party of German Catholics, the German the Bavarian People's Party, which was the party of uh, the Catholics in Bavaria, uh, the uh, uh, German Liberal Parties, there were two of significance, the German State Party and the German Democratic Party. And then most importantly, there was the Social Democratic Party, the party of the German working class, uh, the most uh, visible party on the German left. What would they do? And one by one, they all threw their support behind Hindenburg's candidacy. So what you have in 1932 is a reversal of the uh, electoral coalitions that had existed in 1925. In 1925, Hindenburg had enjoyed the support of the German right and even uh, some of the uh, non-socialist parties in the German middle. Uh, The uh, Social Democrats and the Center Party and even the German Democratic Party had supported the candidate, uh, the candidacy of Hindenburg's opponent, uh, Wilhelm Marx. Now in 1932, you have a total reversal of that where the Democratic parties the social democrats, the liberal parties, etc., rally behind Hindenburg, okay, and the uh, right-wing elements that had supported Hindenburg in 25 now are forced to choose between Dusterberg or Hitler. And in that choice, uh, most of them uh, are, seem to be moving towards Hitler rather than towards Hugenberg's candidate, that would be uh, Dusterberg. So it's a a sort of a very complicated political constellation that emerges in the spring of 1932. But the remarkable thing is is that there's this sort of reversal of uh, coalitions. And uh, one thing that really interested me about the book was um, that how you describe it is Hindenburg uh, often didn't feel like he should campaign or didn't campaign much. And it, you seem to have this dynamic that Heinrich Brüning was, it was his job to get Hindenburg well, reelected. That was it. I mean, I mean, that was part of the, part of the, uh, the, uh, the agreement, the contract, uh, Hindenburg never ventured from his estate in Neudeck when he was not in Berlin, he was on his estate. He issued, he received a couple of delegations there. He, issued a couple of statements. He really only made one speech during the entire campaign. Uh, it was Bruning who did most of the campaigning for uh, 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 Hindenburg. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's somewhat unusual, but uh, 
that Hindenburg did not play a more active role in his own campaign, uh, but he uh, put everything in, in on Bruning's shoulders in that regard. And then, in some ways, Bruning becomes something of a tragic figure in that he then, in some ways, carries uh, the blame in Hindenburg's eyes for the fact that he gets reelected by voters that he doesn't necessarily feel um, terribly connected to. Uh, that this flip that you described was a frustrating thing for Hindenburg to to cope with. Uh, it, it may have been. I don't know whether it was frustrating for Hindenburg mm-hmm. or not. It was probably going to be more frustrating for Bruning mm-hmm. because almost immediately after the the uh, the election, uh, Bruning had an audience with Hindenburg in which Hindenburg simply told him, now it's time to carry out a realignment of your government and move to the right. Mm-hmm. Issued that in sort of a, in the form of an ultimatum. And Bruning resisted. He says, you can't, treat the, you can't treat the social Democrats that way. These are people who put their reputation on the line for you. He's talking specifically about the uh, social Democratic minister president of Prussia, Otto Braun, who also weighed in very heavily in getting the Social Democratic Party uh, in line. And and Bruning's position is that you can't treat these people. It would be an act of betrayal of their trust if you did. And so uh, Hindenburg backed off. But in any event, Bruning was under immense pressure, okay, uh, to uh, to bring the, the, the elements on the German right into his cabinet, uh, but those elements were absolutely, uh, I, I would say, opposed to becoming part of any cabinet was headed by Bruning. And so they were advocating for a more radical uh, reorganization of the government. Uh, there were different schemes. Maybe Bruning would stay on as chancellor, but he would not be the one who would be uh, pulling the strings, so to speak. Or maybe they would continue him in the capacity of foreign, mini- uh, foreign, uh, foreign minister. Uh, but... Uh, uh, you have from, say, the elections, the final second round of the elections was April 10th. So between April 10th uh, through uh, May and uh, into June, uh, you have this uh, real stalemate that begins to, that develops. And I think the, the key figure here at this point is uh, Schleicher, who has... Uh, a, a good deal of influence with uh, Hindenburg because he represents the, the, the German military and he uh, is doing his best to, uh, I, I wouldn't say sort of maneuver Bruning out of power. And uh, I'm not going to go, I wouldn't don't want to go through all of the details of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of this does draw to a climax when on, in, in, I think on May 20, between May 28th and May 30th, 1932, uh, Bruning is forced to resign. Uh, he loses, quote, he loses Hindenburg's confidence uh, and uh, is re- obliged to step down as, uh, as chancellor in his famous slogan, a hundred meters before the end, because he was at that time involved in uh, negotiations aimed at uh, bringing an end to reparations. Had he done that, I think his popularity would have been greatly enhanced and it may have been more difficult to move him out of the office. And so there were pressures, uh, particularly from the military, to force his removal from office before he could claim credit for ending Germany's reparations burden. 
Now, just shifting gears a little bit, just because it seems um, like a, uh, a topic that's very important to the book, uh, you spend uh, a fair amount of time talking about uh, this uh, Hertzberg rally in this so-called uh, Hertzberg front. Yes. And I, I just wondered if you could talk uh, talk about that in the context of your larger thesis about fragmentation here. Well, uh, the Hartsburg front refers to a rally in the resort town of Bad Hartsburg in the uh, second week of October 1931. Uh, this was the brainchild of Hugenberg. Uh, he wanted to bring all of the elements on the German right, including the Nazis, together for a demonstration against the Bruning cabinet, uh, hopefully from Hindenburg's, uh, Hugenberg's position, hopefully in putting uh, pressure upon Hindenburg to bring about uh, a change of governments. That was the goal. And uh, this was timed uh, to coincide with the reopening of the German Reichstag when Bruning himself would have to present another one of these draconian emergency decrees uh, on fiscal and economic policy uh, to the Reichstag. Question of whether or not he would survive a vote in the Reichstag and the Harsburg uh, rally was uh, designed to position the German right to uh, assume power if, in fact, Bruning failed. Uh, The Harsburg rally, however, turned out to be a, a major fiasco in large part because of the antics of Hitler himself. Hitler did not want to be sort of harnessed to the agenda of the more traditional and conservative elements on the German right. Uh, Hitler conceived of himself as a revolutionary nationalist uh, and uh, really uh, had very little uh, sympathy, very little interest, very little respect for traditional German conservatives who were allied uh, to, uh, you know, uh, con- you know, conservative elites in agriculture and, and industry and all of that. Uh, and so uh, Hitler was very wary of being trapped in this respect. And uh, the other irony is that uh, here is that right before the, uh, Harsburg rally, Hitler had had a meeting with Schleicher in Berlin. And Schleicher had, I think I would put it this way, uh, greatly sort of uh, inflated uh, Hitler's own sense of destiny, so to speak. Uh, Whether or not Schleicher was trying to sabotage the Harsburg front, that is very likely. And he may have been playing Hitler in order to get Hitler to do his dirty work for him. But in any event, when Hitler went to uh, Hartsburg, uh, he went he went with the idea of keeping as much distance between himself, Nazi Party on one hand, and the uh, conservatives around Hugenberg and the Stahlhelm on the other. And so, when the steel helmet or the Stahlhelm marched in this parade through the city of Hartsburg and all of that, Hitler left the podium. He didn't stay on the podium when they installed him. It was a sign of his own disdain as something that was taken as an insult. Uh, there were other things uh, that went on where Hitler simply made it quite clear that he had no intention of cooperating with these, that he would show up for 
demonstrations by his own party and by its formations. But when other elements of this sort of national front were involved, he would absent himself or, uh, you know, uh, you know, so in any event, uh, the Harsburg front failed miserably because instead of affirming the unity of the German right, it displayed just how deep the divide between the more traditional elements on the right and the more radical elements on the right was. Great. And that, uh, uh, taking our, our next step, I'd like to transition to a concept that you talk about throughout the book. And it really struck me, especially uh, in reading the conclusion of the book, where you talk about the problems of this election uh, in both candidates is that the, the both the uh, legitimacy of the Hindenburg and the Hitler candidacy both rested to a certain degree on charisma and charisma over what I would say rational argument. I can't remember the term you use in the book, okay. but uh, could you talk a little bit about um, what you meant by that and why, uh, why that was so problematic for the survival of Weimar democracy? Well, I, I think it's going on here. Uh, I think it's important to point out <clears throat> that both Hitler and Hindenburg relied very heavily upon charisma as a way of legitimating their claim to the leadership of the German nation. Uh, this has always been very evident in the, in the case of Hitler. Uh, there have been, from the very beginning, uh, po- political sociologists, journalists have all drawn attention to Hitler's charisma. So that's, that's not a, a particularly new idea. But it also seems, it also, you know, on the, certainly... Uh, that that Hindenburg also relied very heavily on charisma. And this is the point of a book that Wolfram Wolfram Puta, uh, a German historian who teaches at the University of Tübingen, uh, has made in his recent biography of Hindenburg. And that Hindenburg, from the very beginning, well, I'm going to put it this way. One of Hindenburg's closest aides, Wilhelm Gruner, who served as the Minister of Defense, in Germany from 1928 to 1932, said that out of the out of the out of the uh, collapse of 1918, out of the, the shambles uh, uh, of the German military at the end of World War One, something had to be preserved to serve as a symbol around which uh, the uh, nation could unite. And that was Hindenburg. So from the very beginning, from 1919, 1920, there is an attempt to create or, or to, to give Hindenburg a sort of mythic stature. Uh, the term Hindenburg myth was used at the time. It has been certainly used in subsequent uh, uh, studies of Hindenburg. And uh, so he was invested with this sort of mythic, almost superhuman quality. And so what we find in 1932 is that you have two, uh, how do I put this, two different claims to leadership, one by Hindenburg, one by Hitler, and both of them legitimate their claims by through some sort of charismatic appeal. Now, the, the, the charisma is different in the sense that I think uh, – uh, uh, Hindenburg's charisma is more rooted in 
the traditions of German greatness and, 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 and specifically what they called the Prussian tradition, whereas in Hitler's case, his charisma is much more revolutionary uh, in nature uh, and uh, is, is, you know, draws from an entirely different sort of, I think, psychological uh, reserve, resource. Um, so what we have is, the, you know, uh, two uh, different uh, players here, competing against each other through a sort of charismatic appeal that they uh, exercise over the German public. Now, the net effect of this is that the election, although it ends, and this is something we have to read in Hindenburg's victory over Hitler, uh, which would have been a major victory for the forces of Weimar democracy, I'm not certain that's exactly how it was, but that was how it was read at the time. And that despite that, the net effect of the election and the net effect of the way in which charisma was deployed in the election was to undermine the whole pattern of legitimation upon which the Weimar Republic itself was based. Uh, the, the Weimar Republic functioned by this time as an instrument for the mediation of conflicts between different sectors, different interest groups in German society. And that's how politics had defined itself. Politics was conceived of as the medium through which different economic interest groups in German society advance their own agenda and their own interests. Uh, to be sure, by 1929, 1930, it was impossible to do that because these interests uh, had, there, there, there was such a confrontation between these different interests that it had a paralytic effect, paralyzed, you know, uh, the democratic process itself. So you already have blockage, the blockage of these interests and their inability to achieve much because of the conflicts they, you know, so, so you have to complete, and all of that is, is, is greatly exacerbated by the uh, deepening economic crisis through the early 1930s. So in, so in any event, the, uh, the more traditional conception of politics based upon the representation of interest through parliament and through parties, uh, that is already, I think, uh, coming under uh, fire it's already becoming increasingly dysfunctional. So there is a sort of a crisis situation in 1932 where I think more and more German people tend to look for someone who, uh, there's, a, there's a very strong messianic impulse at work within German political culture then. It seems that there is the longing for the savior who will rescue Germany from the morass of party politics, Okay. And, uh, and and restore uh, the health and, and sanity of the German nation. Uh, and so in many respects, both Hindenburg and Hitler feed that impulse by portraying themselves as the Messiah or as the savior of, of the German nation. And this becomes an increasingly uh, powerful impulse in the last uh, months of the Weimar Republic, and it makes it virtually impossible 
uh, to uh, somehow uh, restore uh, parliamentary government as it had functioned up to uh, and uh, up to the uh, the great crisis of 29-1930. In some ways, I think this leads then to sort of how you end the book, right? Where Hindenburg win one re-election, but yes. Hitler in many ways was the real victor of 1932 in the long run. Uh, well, he was, and 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 I mean, uh, there was there was certainly some despondence in the Nazi camp immediately after uh, Hindenburg's victory. I mean, at that time, you don't you didn't have the type of polling that you have here in, the, yeah. in, in <laughs> today, and and so I think the Nazis really thought in March, April of thirty two that they were going to win that runoff election, uh, uh, but uh, they didn't, uh, but. Uh, uh, and Hitler, you know, who was a very moody and emotional person, uh, had was immediately despondent, and uh, you know, uh, but it was Goebbels who really uh, turned him around. Joseph Goebbels was his propaganda minister and uh, propaganda head of the propaganda organization within the Nazi Party. Works on him right away. Sudden change of mood. And they realize that, well, this is only one setback, but the ultimate victory is ours. And they immediately begin to intensify pressure upon uh, uh, the government for change of cabinets and for Hitler bringing the Nazis into the government. And so uh, Hitler, I think, uh, is the ultimate victor uh, in large part because the... uh, the uh, people who are running the political system at this time, and that would include Schleicher and, uh, and certainly, uh, I think, Hitler, uh, Hindenburg's uh, Secretary of State, Otto Meissner, people like this realize that you, that, uh, you cannot uh, govern without having the Nazis in the government, and it becomes a question of whether or not you work out some sort of arrangement by which the Nazis enter the government or take control of the government. Those are the two options that seem to exist at that point in time. And uh, there are certainly some ups and downs between April of 32 and January of 33, where it doesn't always seem that that that's going to happen or work out in that particular way. Uh, But in many respects, uh, it, 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 Hitler's defeat does little to diminish the legitimacy of the claims that he is making upon the loyalties of the German people. And, uh, and uh, then I think uh, just sort, sort of wrap this up, what we have in January of 1933 when Hindenburg, under uh, increasing pressure from various sectors in uh, of the of, conservative elites uh, appoints Hitler as chancellor on January 1930, 30th, uh, 30th of January 1933. And then we have this situation, I think, where we see, and this is the argument that Putin makes towards the end of his book, is that we have a new regime that is founded on the sort of combined charisma of Hindenburg on one hand and Hitler on the other. Uh, and uh, that provides the sort of charismatic legitimation of the Third Reich that certainly carries Hitler through those first turbulent six months of the regime. All right. Well, 
I would say that we've taken up a, a lot of your time at this point. So I'd like to conclude with our usual final question at the New Books Network. And that is, uh, what are you working on now? What are your current projects? Well, <laughs> I'm going back to finish the project that I was working on when uh, I was uh, advised to, to take a break from it and to uh, write the book on 32 elections. So I am in the, completing the final stages of the manuscript that is tentatively entitled The German Right, 1918-1930, uh, Political Parties, Organized Interests, and Patriotic Associations in the Struggle Against Weimar Democracy. Great. Yeah. And I think you also have an edited volume that's about to come out. Is that I do have an edited volume. I'll co-edited. Uh, it's co-edited with Herman Beck, University of Miami, and it is titled From uh, Weimar to Hitler. Uh, and the uh, subtitle is um, uh, the, the Dissolution of Weimar Democracy and the Establishment of the Third Reich, 1932 to 1934. And so it is a book that covers uh, basically what we call the Nazi seizure of power, begins with uh, the appointment of Oppen cabinet in January 1st, 32, and continues through the Rome Purge in June 30th, 1934. Great. Well, it sounds like we might uh, need to have you back on the show to talk about one or both of those books down the line. (laughs) More than happy to do so. (laughs) All right, Larry. Well, thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me. And uh, at this point, I'll uh, sign off and let everyone know that you've been listening to uh, uh, New Books in German Studies. Uh, Once again, a podcast that belongs to the New New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, and I'm one of several uh, co-hosts of this channel. Uh, We've been talking today with Larry Eugene Jones of Canisius College, and we've been discussing his book, uh, his recent book, Hitler versus Hindenburg, the 1932 presidential election and the end of the Weimar Republic, published with Cambridge University Press in 2016. We hope you'll tune in uh, with us again next time, and I hope you continue listening to our network. Thank you very much.